Okay, Romans 8, starting in verse 12. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, thanks, Eric. <clears throat> Good evening, everybody. How are we doing? We got a new little uh, look and feel. Look at that. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> I'm going to try not to do that very often. Um, got a new look and feel this, this evening. I like it better in here. I am, uh, you guys know me well enough now to know I am old school, traditional. I wanted to climb in this pulpit and preach, but uh, there's a sign on it, Corey, don't get in the pulpit, so I'm going to preach in this music stand. But uh, I love I love this. I love gathering with you guys. You guys are great. Thank you for, for coming out tonight. My name is Corey. I'm one of the pastors here at Providence, and if this is your first time visiting us, I just want to tell you that we're thankful that you are here. Our hope is that we will serve you well, that we'll make much of Jesus, and uh, that you'll want to continue on with us, <clears throat> joining in uh, covenant membership as we move forward. Um, we're going to be, as Eric said, in Romans chapter 8, uh, particularly verses 12 through 17. But before we get started, if you'll just take your Bible and flip over to Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, we're going to start off today in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, and then we'll work our way into the 8th chapter of Romans from there. So I want to pray for us this morning. I know uh, we just did that a little while ago, but I'm going to pray again before we get started. And then we'll jump right into the, to the sermon this morning. So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you, God, for your grace, first and foremost, your grace in, in saving sinners, God, sinners like us. And Father, we ask that that would never become a, um, something that we are used to, Father, but that we would find ourselves consistently over and over again awestruck by your grace, my God. God, help each and every one of us to fall deeper in love with you day by day, God, as we learn more about you and as we grow in our knowledge of who you are. Father, I pray that that's what we would do this morning. That as we open the scriptures, God, we would grow in our knowledge of who you are. We would grow in our knowledge of who you have made us to be, God. And that, that through, your, through your scripture, God, that, that hearts and eyes might be open to your glory. Father, I pray that we would, we would see people repent this morning, God. I pray that we would see people come to know you this morning. Father, I just ask that you would bless our time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And that is our hope. What I just prayed is our hope for every one of you. Whether you are a, a believer or not sure if you're a believer or you might be absolutely sure that you are not a believer, I want you to know that our prayer for you consistently is that you would come into gathering with us and that we would preach the word of the Lord and you would hear the word of the Lord and be compelled to respond to that, no matter what, which one of those categories you fall in. So that's going to be our hope this morning. Uh, we're continuing on, as Eric told us, in a series called 
the presence, the power, and the people of God, in which we've been looking at the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. How does, how does he interact with us? What has God sent him to do? Um, how is the Holy Spirit among us working and doing the will of God for us? And last week, Joseph preached on Easter Sunday, did a great job from Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. He preached a sermon titled, The Spirit of Life. If you haven't had an opportunity to listen to that, as I always say, I would encourage you to go back um, because each one of these sermons, they're folding together in the midst of a series and and they all kind of build on one another. So if you haven't listened to the sermon from last week, go back and do that. Um, And and Joe kind of walked us through our call to live as a resurrected people. A resurrected people who are liberated from the power of Satan, the power of sin, and the power of death by the power of the cross. Amen. By the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what we walked through um, last week. And we have, if we are in Christ, we have been liberated from that tyranny so that we might live our lives as children of God. Like that's what the scripture tells us. We've been liberated from the tyranny of sin and death by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ so that we might then move forward living our lives as children of God. That is a wonderfully encouraging thing to know that that is what God intends for us. He doesn't intend to save us and then put us on a path that we can't possibly do all the things that he's asked us to do. He doesn't intend to save us from our sin and then tell us, okay, continue on and try not to sin anymore because if you do, I'm gonna withdraw my spirit from you. The scripture doesn't teach us that. God saves us so that we might live as children of God via what we would say is our spiritual adoption by God. We have been taken by God from spiritual orphans, those who were wandering around looking for purpose, hopelessly lost and dead, as we talked about last week and several weeks before, we were dead and we have been brought to life so that we might live as children of God. (laughs) That's an incredible truth, friends. Like, and I hope that we understand that we're going to spend the bulk of our time, not the bulk, we're going to spend all of our time um, tonight talking about our adoption, our spiritual adoption, and how the Holy Spirit operates as the spirit of that adoption. Like, that's what we're going to be looking at today, and, and we believe that the Spirit is the one who brings us from being spiritual orphans and adopts us into the family of God. So when we talk about what is the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church, we can't look at that fully without understanding the Holy Spirit, without understanding Him as being the agent that brings us from spiritual orphancy into a family. And we talked about it, I believe it's maybe three weeks ago, um, I preached and we talked about the spirit of regeneration. We talked about the Holy Spirit working and regenerating the heart and bringing it from, from death. That, that, that word we kept saying, that necros, that Greek word, brings us from death into life via the Holy Spirit's action and regenerates our heart. And it is in that regeneration being brought from death to life that we are then woven into the family of God. We are adopted by him. So we'll spend some, some time this morning, as I said, beginning in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Let me read that to you quickly. It should come up on the screen, I think, and then we'll hop into the bulk of the text. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So as I said, 
Today's sermon is titled The Spirit of Adoption. Now, adoption is something that is, is very close to my heart. It's very close to the wife of my, to the heart of my wife, not the wife of my heart. I guess she is the wife of my heart. It's very close to both of us. Like we, uh, if you guys, most of you probably know, but if you're a visitor, if we haven't had a chance to, to meet and get to know one another, my wife and I are adoptive parents. We have a seven-year-old son um, who spent the first 18 months of his life in an orphanage in Volgograd, Russia. And the Lord led my wife and I to work through the process and adopt Jonah and bring him home. And that was like back in 2012. And he's been here long enough that it feels like he was never not here, although we know that he was never not here. And we know that he was gone first 18 months of his life. But uh, I'll tell you guys, that experience of, of everything that went along with that adoption of Jonah was to this day, one of the most incredible things that I have ever experienced. And one of the things that I've shared this with you guys before, one of the places during that adoption process where I got hung up um, was there was a time at the very beginning that I felt like I was going to Russia personally to save Jonah from his plight. That God had somehow called myself and called my wife to be the saviors of, of the boy that is now our son. And what I learned as that process continued to matriculate and I found all of the weaknesses inside of me, I found that there was no way that I could save my son. I was nothing more than a vessel that God was using in order to bring my son into my family. And in that lesson, as, I, as we pursued him and we pursued um, the adoption, the Lord taught me so much about my own adoption, my spiritual adoption, how I was brought from being a spiritual orphan into a, a member of the family of God with God as my father, even though, and the scripture tells us, we'll read a little later, uh, being made an heir of God, a co-heir with Christ, and how that is something that was not I, I did not deserve it. I didn't earn it. I wasn't born into it, but yet it was gifted to me by a gracious God who loved me, as Ephesians 1 tells us, before the foundations of the world. Like, those are great things. And, and as, as we press through this adoption of Jonah, we, we learned so much about the Lord. We also learned so much about our limitations as human beings trying to do the Lord's work. From, from getting his, I can remember getting his pictures one day from the agency, they came in and Leah was at work and there was a referral in our inbox for a boy and I'd been given a call and said, hey, you're gonna get this referral, the email's gonna be pictures and stuff in there and I refused to look at them until my wife could look at them with me. I remember thinking, I'm not doing this. Like this could be detrimental to me if I look at this without her. And at the time we lived in Hull, Texas. If you're not familiar, get familiar. It's the capital of the world. But we lived in, in Hull and we didn't have very good internet. We didn't have, we had dial up internet in 2012. Like this is reality. So uh, my wife was teaching high school at the time. So we had to get in our car and we had to drive to her school and basically go in the back door after hours and use their internet to download these pictures of my son. And I can still remember seeing the picture came up and I looked at it and I said, I said, Leah, he looks really funny. Like he just had this look, this personality. And if you know him, Jonah is very funny. He's also a, a handful. But we, we, I remember that. I can remember the travel, the first 15-hour flight to, to Moscow and then another hour and a half down to Volgograd. And having an emo I had an emotional breakdown when we got to the hotel. Like we landed in an airport that was an old World War II landing strip and it was in the middle of nowhere. And our ride wasn't there. Our translator wasn't there. They showed up about an hour late and it was about a 40 mile drive from the airport to our hotel. And I just knew that I was gonna show up to a Hilton and I was gonna get out and I was gonna get a shower 
and a king-size bed and probably ordered something for room service and all that fun stuff. And when we walked into our room, it was about the size of one of those bathrooms in there and it had three twin beds side by side and a shower that I kid you not, I could not get in because it was so small. And I just walked out of that bathroom. I remember looking at my wife and just lost it. Like literally six hours laying on the floor. I was crying. I was overwhelmed with what we were doing. I opened the, the blinds up and I looked out and I just saw snow and like lights in a language that I couldn't read. And I lost it. My wife, it was so bad, Leah came up and knelt down beside me and said, if you want to go home, we can go tomorrow. I was losing it, man. Like, I had no idea what it was that the Lord was doing in that moment. But I'll tell you this, through all of that, it was the most, one of the most costly things I've ever got done, both emotionally and physically and financially. But it was, to this day, one of the greatest experiences I've ever had. And now I'm Jonah's earthly father, and I praise God consistently for that privilege. But I'll tell you this, and this is where this segues into what we're talking about in the sermon today. There is a greater adoption for Jonah that I pray for every day. Every day. Like, I'm so thankful that I adopted him, but I call him son now. I pray to God daily that one day I can call him brother. Right? And this is the reality of spiritual adoption. It doesn't, we, we model it in worldly adoption, and, and we should because the gospel calls us to that. But spiritual adoption means that from the moment that you are woven into the family of God until the day you pass from this earth and you stand before God, you are a child of God. And nothing, nothing takes that away from you. Nothing will ever remove that from you. Earthly adoption is a great thing. But God's gracious purpose of adoption for spiritually orphaned sinners like us is the apex of the gospel message. Like that is the top of the gospel mountain. And I pray that God would give us that knowledge. If not today, tomorrow, maybe you've got it, praise God for that, but that someone would understand today that God doesn't just free you from sin for more tyranny, but he frees you from sin for sonship. <laughs> Children of God. It's wonderful. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. I'm going to take a few minutes here before we get into Romans 8. I'm going to pull out four things that I believe Paul is communicating in this passage about our spiritual adoption. I'm going to read it to you again, and then I'll jump into the text. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So the first thing that I want to pull out of this passage of scripture that I believe Paul is communicating to us about spiritual adoption is first that we were predestined for adoption. We find that in verse 5. It's in the text, I'll read it to you. It says, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Our adoption, according to the scripture, was not initiated by us, but it was initiated by God himself. This is an undeniable truth that we find in scripture. The decision to make us children of God was made before we or the world was even created. Look with me at verse four. 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, I know because I peeked at my wife's Facebook last week that a lot of you had the opportunity to go with family and visit First Baptist Church of whatever last week, right? Like you guys were everywhere in your pink dresses with all the fun stuff and praise God for that. Like we're excited that you had the opportunity to worship with your family. And on Easter, when I read about our, we listen to Joe's sermon text and when I read about salvation on Easter, I am always reminded of some of the old hymns that we sang in the churches. Right, the one that I remember when it comes to Easter, you may have heard it last week in First Baptist, wherever. My grandmother played piano at Central Baptist Church in Dayzetta, Texas for years, and she still does. And they play this one old hymn that has this, I don't even know what you'd call the key, but the deep ones on the left-hand side, and it starts out, boom, 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 boom. And they sing it every Easter. It's, up from the grave he arose, right, with a mighty triumph. So, like, I know some of you guys sang that last week, but when I read this and I read about us being chosen by God for adoption before the foundation of the world, I'm reminded of another hymn. I'm reminded of one, I don't even know if it's a hymn, it's an old song that used to be sung in church all the time when I was growing up. Um, the lyrics went something to the effect of when, I was on the cr- when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. We've heard that. So I read this and immediately I think, wow, it wasn't just that when he was on the cross we were on his mind, it was before he spun the world into motion we were on his mind. Like, that's an incredible truth about not just some dude that did a good thing for you, but the God of the universe. Before he spoke the first word that broke light into darkness that we did not even know to call darkness because he hadn't called it that yet. Before that happened, the Bible tells us he had predestined those of us who are in Christ for adoption. That is a wonderful truth. And it is good news because what that means for us is that our sin and our rebellion beyond that point has not surprised God. Because he knew you before the foundations of the world. Therefore, he knew who you were, what you were about, and where you would rebel before he ever saved you. Like, that's great news. What that means for us, what we can cling to in that truth, is that if he knew prior to adopting you, he's not going to unadopt you because you wander into sin. That is the assurance of our salvation. We serve a God who saves us once and for all, and that is wrapped up in the fact that before the foundations of the earth, we were predestined for adoption. He knew us. He knew us intimately then, and he knows us intimately now. God has always intended from the very beginning to enlarge his family by bringing sinners like us into it. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. The writer of Hebrews says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, God, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So even before the foundations of the world, God's intention was to bring many sons to glory through the death, resurrection of Christ. And we are counted in that number. We see that in the scripture. If we are in Christ, Jesus died so that God might save many through Christ's sacrifice. And that has been God's plan since before time existed and your spiritual adoption was part of that plan. Praise God. Praise God for his goodness in saving sinners like us. Point number two that I want to pull out of Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 6 is that our spiritual adoption is not about us, but it is about the glory of God. Look at verse 6. It says that we were 
right after telling us that we were predestined for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, verse 6 tells us to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. All praise, glory, and honor for our spiritual adoption should be lavished upon our Savior. All of it should be lavished upon Christ and for what he has done for us. This is why our salvation and our ability to remain saved after being saved cannot be based on our works. If this were a works-based thing, if we were able to work our way into salvation, all glory and honor would not be due to God. Glory and honor would be due to us because I could somehow be good enough to twist the arm of Almighty God into saving me because I hit all the moral checkboxes on the list that was given to me. That is not what the Scripture tells us. It says that these things have happened. We have been saved. We have been brought into the family of God and adopted and made sons and daughters and children of God so that God might be honored, so that he might be glorified, so that he might he might get praise and honor and adoration through it. And that is why we live our lives in the way that we live our lives. We are not called to be moral creatures because the world needs more moral creatures. We are called to be new creations in Christ that reflect the glory of our God. (laughs) That is the truth of what, what God has done for us through our adoption, through our spiritual adoption. If these things were work based, we would have reason to believe that we earn it and we have not earned it our adoption our spiritual adoption arises out of God's desire and focus on his glory and praise we did not deserve our salvation we did not do anything to earn our salvation but it is the mercy and favor of our gracious father that we have received it we did nothing to warrant being woven into his family but yet it is his great pleasure to bring us in and make us co-heirs with Christ and the family of God. That's great news. Point number three, our adoption is in Christ. Our adoption is through the shed blood of Christ. There is no other way. Apart from putting your faith in Christ, apart from, from repenting of sin and turning and becoming a follower of Christ, there is no other way that we are brought into the family of God. That is the door by which that takes place. There is no spiritual blessing outside of Christ, but in Christ there is no spiritual blessing that is not ours. Amen? Look at how many times Paul puts the emphasis on Christ in, the, in these, these three verses that we're looking at. We see in verse 3, he tells us we are blessed in Christ. In verse 4, we are chosen in him. In verse 5, we are predestined through Jesus Christ. In verse 6, we are blessed in the beloved who is Christ. Our adoption is woven into the atoning sacrifice of God, the Son, and outside of that, our adoption would otherwise be impossible. Our spiritual adoption would be Impossible. Praise be to God for sending his son. And point number four in Ephesians chapter one, we are adopted so we will bear the family likeness. Look at verse four. It says, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. The family of God is not identified by genetics The family of God is not identified by DNA. The family of God is not identified by race. The family of God is identified by being holy and blameless before God through the blood of Christ. 
Like he tells us here that that is what they will identify you by. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 15. Paul writes this, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. It is our holy and blameless stature before creator almighty God that is the likeness which is stamped on us and puts us into the family of God. There's no other determining factor. Paul says that that is what will make us distinct from those outside of the family. And through adoption into the family of God, the family is purposely made diverse by God. Like he does this with purpose. This is not God coming in and gathering a single people group together for himself. No, he blew the doors off that and God purposely began to weave diversity into the family of God through adoption. Because holy and blameless knows no race. Holy and blameless knows no name. Holy and blameless knows no status. It knows no tithe number. It knows no gift. It knows none of those things. It only knows holy and blameless before God. And to visit something I said earlier, you were only holy and blameless before God through the blood of Christ. That's it. So Paul says this is the distinguishing factor that will set you apart and will show that you are in the family of God. What that means for us is that we don't get to choose who is brought into the family. We don't get to pick and choose. We have already determined that God does this before the foundation of the world. And I don't know about you, but I was not there. I wasn't there. Therefore, we do not get to choose who God brings in to the family. But many of us if we are honest, would like to exude some control over who is allowed into the family. We do this with our earthly family. I think I said this three weeks ago when I preached. Like One of the terms that I use all the time is this term, family infiltrators. You can ask my wife. This comes up once a week at my place. I'm like, who are, all, who are these people that keep showing up at these events? I go to Easter at my mom's last week. There are just people everywhere. And I'm like, who are these people? Like, I've been around here for 35 years, and all of a sudden, Cousin Joe gets a girlfriend, and she somehow gets a pass to the family Easter festivity. And I don't like it, because it makes me uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. I got to go, I got this weird thing in me, oh, man, I got to go talk to her. I got to, like, try to get to know this person. Or I'll just go full-on avoidance and just say nothing. And then I'll leave my wife. She's like, you kind of acted like a jerk. And I was like, I didn't ask him to come here. Like he came here on his own. I did not invite him into my family. I didn't do this. But we do this. If, we are, if we're honest, we would like to exude some control over that. This is why as elders here, and I'll, I'll bring it back in and get, get serious for a moment. This is why we often get requests for the creation of, of different specific stage of life type home groups. Right? We say, man, we, we really should create a home group specifically for singles. Or we should go in and say, if you're 50 and above, these are your home groups. If you're here, the, if you've got kids, these are your home groups. If you don't have kids, these are your home groups. And we do this. It's not, it's not a malicious thing. It's because we are simply just more comfortable building relationships with people who are like us. Conversation comes easier, right? If I sit across the table from another family that has three kids that are lighting matches in the other room, we're just looking at each other like, yeah, like we got this. Like that comes easy 
for us. We don't feel like we can relate to those who are not like us. But here's the thing. The reason we don't feel we can relate to those who are not like us is because we have grown naive and we have forgotten the thing that makes us like one another, which is the gospel. It doesn't matter if you're 60 or if you're 8. You got completely different interests in life, but you have a commonality. It's in the blood of Christ. It's applied to you, and you are holy and blameless and adopted into the family. Praise God. Like, that gives us something. We have that. We put our hands on it, and we say, this is what makes us alike. And then we learn from each other through the diversity. This is, man, this is earth-shattering stuff for some people. They're like, wait a minute, what do you mean? Are you saying that if I'm single, I should go to a home group with married people in it? Yes. <laughs> Hear me. Yes. Now, am I saying that you can't get anything from a home group full of single? Absolutely not. That's why we have friendships. Like, you do that. But within the body of Christ, like, you should be seeking diversity in those that you have consistent relationships with. And that's a hard thing to do. That is not ideal because it is against our very nature. And folks, as hard as it is to talk about, there's also uh, much more sinister reasons why some would like to have control over who is allowed into the family. Uh, If you have paid attention to Twitter or evangelical circles or anything of that nature this week, you know that there's been a, I'll call it a spirited discussion within, within believers from, you know, all over the world about, about racism. It's been going on this week because there was a conference. Um, you probably are aware that, that this was the, uh, I believe it was last week, was the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. And the Gospel Coalition sponsored a conference um, called MLK 50, where they spent a lot of time, not a lot of time, like the whole basis of the conference was focused on racial unity within the body of Christ. Like, this went on for days, like, list of speakers a mile long. And, and it's very interesting. It's very interesting if you've got some time this afternoon. I've already done it, so I'll be watching WrestleMania instead when I get home. But if you've got some time this afternoon and you are a, you are a, a Twitter person, go to Twitter and just search the hashtag MLK50 and read. Read some of the, some of the conversation that's going on. It's actually, it's actually pretty disturbing. Uh, Dr. King once called the, the 11 a.m. hour on Sunday the most segregated hour in America. And here's the thing, progress has been made in some circles. I'm not going to uh, sit up here and say that it hasn't been made, but for the, for the most part, in a lot of areas, that still seems to be the case. I pulled up a study that Lifeway did back in 2015, and this is literally the title of the study, verbatim, you can Google it. It says, Sunday morning in America is still segregated, and that's okay with worshipers. That's the title of the survey. In the survey, it says that 67% of those surveys said that their church had done enough to become more racially diverse. Yet, the exact same study also tells us that 8 out of 10 congregations in America are split along racial lines. So 80% of congregations split along racial lines, yet 67% of worshipers are saying we're doing, we're doing enough. Like we're doing enough, we're plowing through that. Uh, 53% of those polled disagreed with the statement that their particular congregation needs to become more ethnically diverse. And of that 53%, 33% of those, were strong, they strongly disagreed that the church needed to become more diverse. At the end of the day, we get lulled into a sense of complacency, and we do not like 
when people will use the gospel and say it is antithetical to the gospel that we would continue to be racially segregated as people who we all agree have been made holy and blameless and adopted into the same family with God as our Father. It makes it doesn't make any sense. If those numbers don't sway you, like I said, go back and, and look at Twitter. What's so interesting to me was the controversy that was created by, by several guys, uh, Matt Chandler, Russell Moore, and Ray Orland, just to name a few, who preached at the conference. They called the church to repentance for the sin of racial division, and there was an obscene amount of backlash against those guys for doing that. Like an obscene amount. It, it, is, it, it was to the point that I felt like I expected some, but what I didn't expect was the amount of backlash from the Christian community. Pastors from across the nation, other believers that have come in and said, hey, you're spending way too much time on this issue. They're not saying that what the guys were saying was wrong. They're just saying that the gospel is being pushed to the side in favor of an agenda that is centered on social justice. And in this specific instance, that social justice is racial unity within the body. Now, this is what I will say to that. While I agree, and all the leaders at this church would agree wholeheartedly, that in everything we do, we work to keep the gospel central. But I would ask you, if you share that opinion, to consider what is it about five for racial unity within the body that does not agree with the gospel. If you had that answer, I would like it after service. I can't find it because here's why. Look at what I'm saying. We have an entire ministry at this church and churches across the nation that focus on adoption. I just told you I'm an adoptive parent. We're talking about spiritual adoption. We have no problem talking and pleading and persuading and asking believers to adopt orphans. Isn't that social justice? We have no problem standing and fighting as a unit, as a group of evangelicals and believers and sons and daughters of Christ against abortion. Isn't that social justice? We have no problem calling out sexual and physical abuse and saying that it has no place here. And none of us would sit in a home group with a man or a woman that would come in and sit down and confess that they were being abused either sexually or physically and not step in and run to the aid of that person. No one would say we shouldn't do that. Is that not social justice? But yet when it comes to, when it comes to racial unity, everyone stands up and says, too much social justice, shut it off. And I fear that the reason we do that is because we don't have a full understanding of what it means to truly be a part of the family of God and that which God desires for his family. There are many, many places where if I stood in this pulpit and I preached about border security, if I preached about tightening security on the borders to hold out the illegals for our safety and I used Acts 17 as a justification for that, I would get a standing applause from a lot of congregations. But some people will sit and their skin will crawl. When I read Revelation 7 verses 9 and 10, that says, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from all tribes and people and languages standing before the 
before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. If I said that, our, some people's skin would crawl if I used that to illustrate God's desire for a racially diverse church. Like we would say, stop with the social justice, man. Get back to the gospel. But man, we, we love that border security stuff. We love the stuff that matches with our agenda. And what it is, is that we have to admit, and I've had to come to the realization within myself over the last several years, that there are things about me that I don't like. And a lot of times it's the fact that I'm super comfortable being around you guys. I'm super comfortable. And I want to work, like I want to work for racial unity in the body. But at the same time, I'm like, what's it really hurting? Right? Can we resonate with that? Like, am I the only one? Because I'll, I'll, uh, I'll turn in my stolen staff when we leave if I'm the only one. But I feel that the reason this is uncomfortable and people don't want to engage it is because there's a lot of us who are in that space. And it is until we are stirred enough by the scripture and by the picture that God paints for us and our understanding of our place in his family and our brothers and sisters from every race, tribe, tongue, and nation that are also in the family is God begins to grip our heart with that knowledge. He begins to stoke the fire that says, hey man, this is a worthy cause. And not only should we agree with that cause, but we should actively be out seeking resolution we should actively seek resolution. Regardless of skin color, nation of origin, or cultural background, we have all been adopted into the family of God, and we have been characteristically linked to Christ. Therefore, we must reflect that truth in our diversity and love for one another, despite all of our worldly differences. It is a worthy cause, brothers and sisters, and it is a cause that the leadership of this church is fiercely dedicated to. And we hope you're okay with that, but we really, how do I say this plainly? We really don't care if you're okay with that. <laughs> I love you, but if you don't agree with what we just said, then we love you enough to talk to you about it, but we are not changing course on that. We believe it to be of, of utmost importance. So now, now that we understand a little bit more about spiritual adoption and what that means for us, let's flip back to Romans chapter 8, and let's look at what Paul illustrates as some of the fruit of our spiritual adoption. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. I'm going to read it again to, to refresh our memory. It says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So here we see Paul. He is communicating with, with believers, uh, Christians in Rome, and he's following up on what he said in the first 11 verses of chapter 8, which, like I said, Joseph preached from last week. So Paul is communicating here um, that we, believers in Christ who have been 
empowered with the Spirit, as he says in verse 11, he says that the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. So Paul is communicating that because of that, because of the Spirit that dwells in us, we are no longer debtors to our flesh or our fleshly desires, which we know were once controlled by our sinful nature. So Paul says that is no longer who you are. You are now given the Spirit. Verse 11 says that life was given to our mortal bodies. That which was dead has been made alive through the power of the Spirit. And it's because of the Spirit-wrought life-to-death transaction that's taken place within us that we are no longer slaves to our fleshly nature. We are no longer slaves to our predisposition to sin. But now we are in debt to God our Father who through God the Son saves us and through God the Holy Spirit empowers us to live according to the Spirit and not the flesh. Now you'll ask, what does this have to do with spiritual adoption? And then I would ask you, why is it important to live by the Spirit and not by the flesh? Look at verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So the understanding here, Paul is saying, is that sin always leads to death. Now, what does this have to do with spiritual adoption? I just got done telling you, if you are in Christ, you are alive in Christ. You have been brought from death to life and adopted into the family of God. So that which is alive with Christ cannot then live by the flesh and remain dead, as Paul's telling us in verse 13. Is that right? And here's the thing. Sin always leads to death, no matter what. Like I have run across people who have claimed to know Christ, who have entertained long sin, long stretches of sin in their life because they feel that there is just this copious amount of grace that they can continue to abuse over and over again. And we don't fight sin. We don't war against it. We just lean heavily into the grace of God. And Paul says you can't do that because sin always leads to death. And if you are found gratifying the flesh without seeking repentance, without seeking forgiveness, without claiming the blood of Christ on that sin, there is a very good chance that you can assume or begin to consider whether or not you have been adopted into the family of God. Because what does Paul say in verse 14? For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. The inverse of that is all who are led by the flesh are not sons of God. This is um, something that this is something that needs to be considered. So many people spend time struggling with evidence. How do I know that I am in Christ? How do I know that I have been adopted into the family? How do I know that I don't have to be saved over and over and over again? I call it the youth camp cycle. Some of you are familiar. I I did like five years of student ministry and I saw kids, the same three kids get saved like 14 times. And no matter how many times I set them down and said, You don't have to do this. They never understood it. We are looking for evidence of salvation, and we begin to doubt. And Paul makes it clear here. He gives the Romans a simple definition of salvation, a simple way to know if they have been adopted into the family of God. And it is this, and we should all ask ourselves this question, is our desire to put to death our sin greater than our desire to gratify our flesh? That is the marker of someone who is in Christ. Now, hear me. Um, That doesn't mean that there are not times when we sin. 
That doesn't mean that there are not periods of time where we fall victim to sin, consistent sin that we are dealing with. But what that means is that there will be a time when our desire to gratify the Spirit will be greater than our desire to gratify the flesh. And we will seek repentance from our Father because we understand what it means to be adopted into the family of God. Like that is a very, a very simple way for you to begin fleshing that out within yourself. This is evidence of being led by the Spirit. In verse 14, Paul says, if we are led by the Spirit, we are children of God. If we yield to the Spirit's conviction, if we submit ourselves to the Spirit's leading, those are the ones among us who belong to God's family. But we know we can't become a member of God's family simply by trying to do better, right? Or trying to sin less or trying to be at church more or trying to be a little more active in our home groups. So what is it that empowers us for this, what we've seen in the first few verses, this fighting of sin by the power of the Spirit, what is it that empowers us to do that and then brings us into the family of God? Look at 15 through 17. It says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our Spirit, that we are children of God. Amen. See, it's through the death of Christ. Christ dies. He is a sacrifice for our rebellion against God, the Holy Spirit. It is His work in our heart and regeneration, as we talked about a few weeks ago. It is that also which brings us into the family of God via adoption. And the scripture says it is by the Spirit of adoption that we cry out to God and we say, Abba, Father. We address God in the same way that Christ Jesus addressed God. And we do that by the power of the Spirit who has brought us into the family of God. As I said earlier, our, our adoption did not bring us into a family led by a father who acts as a cruel taskmaster. Our adoption did not bring us into a family who then gave us a law that we could not keep, therefore condemning us to death. No, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and being children of God, we're able to stand where Jesus has always stood, which is looking at God and calling him Abba, calling him Father. Because it is the holy and righteous nature of Christ that has been applied to us when the blood of Christ is applied to us. Throughout Scripture, we see Jesus consistently addressing God as my Father. And then we see Jesus coming back and addressing those of us who follow Christ and instructing us to call God our Father. <laughs> That is incredible if you think about it. If you know, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, if you know the level of your depravity, 
if you understand the depth of your rebellion, if you understand the distance between you and God because of your sin, and then you understand the imputed righteousness of Christ given to us through the death, burial, and then, as we talked about last week, resurrection of Jesus and the Holy Spirit wrought regeneration and adoption, it is an incredible truth that we can stand before God and call him our Father. It's not just a formal way to begin a prayer. It is a declaration of who we are in Christ. It's a declaration of who we are in Christ. It is incredible. And God is our Father. And verse 17 tells us, if he is our Father, then we are heirs of God, and we are fellow heirs with Christ. But the Scripture goes on to say, provided we suffer with him, in order that we might also be glorified with him. This is why Paul spends so much time in the first couple of verses of this passage talking about the importance of not gratifying the flesh but living by the Spirit and fighting our sin because he then goes on to qualify it toward the end. He says if we are children, we are heirs, we're heirs of God, we're fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may glorify, we may be glorified with him. Fighting sin is costly. Fighting sin is costly. Following Christ is costly. But those of us who have been adopted into the family of God, we lay down the things of this world to be a part of the family of God. We lay down the things that hinder us to be a part of the family of God. We lay down whatever it is that we lay down. We are called to drop all of those things, however costly they are, and exchange them for becoming heirs of God and becoming fellow heirs with Christ. This is when adoption, the adoption of my son, really intersects with spiritual adoption because I begin to consider what it means that Jonah, who was born on the other side of the earth, is now my heir. If in 40 years, 50, maybe 60 if I'm lucky, and I die, what that means is that Jonah, a child who was born and put into an orphanage for the first 18 months of his life that did not know me and has no claim to anything that is mine, it means that as an old man, he will then own everything that I own when I go. And this is what the scripture is saying about us, those of us who were born separated from God, as scripture teaches, separated a massive chasm between him and us. And God gave us Christ. Christ died for us. The Holy Spirit empowered us. And because of that, we are made heirs of God. I've said that a hundred times tonight. I hope it hasn't gotten old yet. Don't ever let that get old. Don't ever let our sonship get old to the point that we go, man, I wish he'd talk about something else. Can this guy talk about something other than me being a son or a child of God? Man, may we always have wonder. May we always have something in our soul that is stirred by the reality of the grace of God in saving us. May that always be true for us. I'm going to start wrapping up with this, Brendan, if you guys want to start getting ready. There's a few ways that, that we can respond to this. This, this. this particular text of Scripture is an awe-inspiring Scripture that, that explains and clarifies for us the grace of God in saving sinners and the grace of God that affords us the opportunity to be called sons and daughters of God. 
If you are in Christ today, if you are assured of your place and you know that you have been adopted into the family of God and holy and blameless and all those things, your response to this scripture should be praise and adoration to a gracious king who saved you before the foundations of the world. There should be no way to be indifferent to that, guys. There should be no way to be indifferent to that truth. There should be endless worship flowing from our lives, given unto God because of this truth. It is, we have realized that we have been made heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, and that should elicit a response from us. If it doesn't, I would ask that you would plead with God to give you a fresh response, to take whatever it is that, that burdens you or weighs you down or makes this mundane or whatever it is, that, and remove that to show you who he is again so that you might, you might know and, and have that, that fresh understanding of who it is and who it is Christ is and what it is he has done for you. If you're here today and you are not sure if you are in Christ, I would ask that you would spend some time as we respond searching your heart and asking the Holy Spirit to reveal that to you today. And the last group we'll speak to is those who are here who are not in Christ. I'll say to you very plainly, we must, you must submit yourself to his lordship. Like you must. He is worthy of all of your worship. He is worthy of all of your praise. He is worthy of all of your adoration. And he loves you enough to save you just like he saved me. And just like he saved a multitude of people that sit before us in this, in this room today. I, I, would, I would call you this morning to recognize your sin for what it is, your rebellion against God. Repent of your sin. Repent of your rebellion and put your faith in Jesus Christ this morning. To have any other response than those is, is to harden our heart. It's to harden our heart before God. It's to risk quenching the work of the Holy Spirit, as Scripture tells us is possible. And this morning, we will, uh, Eric will introduce communion here shortly. But as we spend time this morning responding with, with a response song and with a remembrance of, of, of the broken body and the shed blood of Christ for us, I pray that as we do that, we would remember what it is that this sacrifice created for us. Not just a way, a get-out-of-jail-free card, not just a way to be considered blameless, but a way to be counted as children of the Most High God. Let me pray for us, and then I'll turn it over to Brendan. Father, as I said earlier, we, we marvel at your grace. God, thank you that you have been so gracious in, in saving, saving many of us, God, and I pray that you would continue to be gracious in saving many more. God, may many, may many sons and daughters be gathered up for you, God, and added to your family. God, let us be, let us be a church that is fiercely devoted to the addition of sons and daughters to your family. God, let the gospel remain central, Father, but let us keep our eyes focused on, on those things, Father, that, that would glorify you. God, I pray that, that you would just fall on the hearts of those here among us today that don't know you. God, those may be in turmoil, maybe the seekers that are here this morning that are trying to determine what is their standing before you. God, remind them that if they are in you, that you knew them before they had a chance to rebel. That you loved them, God, before they had a chance to rebel, my God, and that their rebellion has not surprised you, but yet you have been gracious in saving them anyway. 
My God, remind them that if they have wandered into this place as seekers and they don't understand or know what their standing is before you, God, that every one of their steps was ordained before the foundations of the world. And that includes the steps that brought them here. They are not pursuing you, my God, but you are pursuing them. God, you're good. You're good like that. Father, let that be. Let that be true for us, Father. Let it be true. May may the many, may, may those, God, who you are pursuing respond this morning to your call. Respond, God, this evening to your glorious grace. In Jesus' name we pray.